0: Camille Ricketts never thought she'd leave her job, but then she got the call. It was First Round Capital, one of the best known and most successful venture capital firms in the tech industry. They wanted her to join and start a new blog for the firm. Sounds simple enough. Just one problem, they were surrounded. The VC blogosphere is so saturated with competition that a site in New York called CB Insights even created a periodic table of venture capital blogs. It lists 89 different bloggers that it decided was the top of the top, which means tons more didn't make the cut. What's a writer to do? What did Camille do? Well, for starters, she had an aspiration. She said, I'll create the Harvard Business Review for startups.
1: And it really occurred to us that there wasn't a resource for this type of information that was targeted so explicitly at startups. So, I think we saw an opening and it was an easy way to describe what it was that we were doing.
0: Now, what most of us would do in Camille's shoes is seek the wide open field, total creative freedom. When faced with that big burning aspiration, we want to do something special. Something exciting. We want to use up all of our best ideas. And spend all of our budget. We want to put it on every social network ever created all at once. And write it on the sky. But that's not what Camille did. She didn't look for the open field. She looked for the box. She put herself in that box. And it was exactly because she did so that Camille Ricketts was able to create one of the most successful blogs for startups on the planet. I'm Jay Akunzo, and we live in a world where it's never been easier to be average. If we don't have an answer or an idea, we can find and follow everyone else's. There's just so much average copycat work out there. But I think the road to doing more exceptional work is to find and follow what makes you an exception. In other words, trust your intuition. It's unthinkable. Camille runs the first round review, which gets over half a million readers a month and has a subscriber list of over 120,000. And it all started by embracing a series of constraints.
1: So the very earliest review stories are actually just recountings of speeches that were made at these types of events. And they started seeing engagement with those pieces.
0: Oh, interesting. So you guys saw it offline, put it online, and it continued to get a positive response. So that kind of contributed to your, your confidence to, to blow it out?
1: Yeah, that was kind of our proving ground was uh, putting the, the content that we saw being relayed in person online in text format. And of course it kind of evolved from there. Right. Instead of us going to these events and you know transcribing what was said and then writing something about what was said, uh, we switched to interviews where we were able to um, go after pieces of information a lot more intentionally and actually spend more time on topic developments and how the information was being relayed and asked follow-up questions and all kinds of stuff like that.
0: But to get to that point, she didn't just start creating everything her gut was saying she should create. Nor did she pursue her wildest aspirations despite the bigness of her mission. Instead, she started small with a set of limitations that she defined and worked with happily. First, there was an insight that she had about her audience, Tech Startup Founders.
1: What we thought would be a niche in the market that we hadn't seen filled yet was operators speaking to operators.
0: You see, most VC blogs that she was competing with were writing from their own perspective, the investors themselves offering their own opinions or relaying stories they heard or trying their hand at analysis of different fields. Good stuff, but not what Camille wanted to copy. Instead, Camille had observed that when founders go to events, they often learn best by talking to other founders, operators teaching other operators. And that was something that she could actually own outright in the market. Because nobody was trying to do that.
1: A very few number of people who are featured on the review are actually in our portfolio. Uh, Our goal instead is to find anybody who has something really unique and really remarkable to say, no matter what company they're working at.
0: Camille also lacked resources and headcount and data about what could work at the firm and time. And then there's this consistent constraint that any of us would bring to any project that we launch who we are. When you have an aspiration, like we want to create the Harvard Business Review for startups, or even if it's less well articulated, it's just, we see this opportunity and as a writer, I'm about to attack that opportunity. I think it forces you to be like emotionally invested in what you're building. So for you as a person who's behind a lot of this content, your tone of voice comes through or something about you makes the first round review the way it is, even if it's a small percent, why were you personally excited about or invested in what you were doing?
1: Oh, wow. Um, you know, it was a chance to build a publication from the ground up and really determine the direction of it. And at the same time, have access to interviewing all of these incredible people making an impact in the world. So that was really what drew me to the to the opportunity was to have ownership over something like this. And that's what keeps me here today, three years later, uh, is this idea that we're doing something That's incredibly helpful for other folks, which is not something you would think you would have usually the opportunity to do in like the field of finance to be like really altruistic (laughs) (laughs) with with advice, uh, with human knowledge to figure out new ways to offer that to people. So I I think that that's what gets me excited every single day to work on this is to find better ways to share things with people that allows them to build brilliant things.
0: One person, little budget, no team, no time, and a single insight about her audience. These were Camille's constraints. The stuff that we often point to when we say we can't do our best work. And yet Camille used those constraints to do hers. She embraced her limitations and they did something wonderful for her work. So why should we embrace constraints when we want so badly to trust our own intuition and just do our best work already? What do limitations do to us and our ability to be exceptional?
2: You know, it just gives birth to all this creativity that would absolutely not be possible had had the restriction not been there. So I just find that quite quite fascinating.
0: That's Varya Bortsova, the creator of Soviet Visuals, a Twitter account that she uses to curate and share art from the former USSR.
2: In the Soviet Union, every everything that was created, it's adhered to certain guidelines.
0: Under the one-party government, the Communist Party or the Bolsheviks would often exile or even execute artists who broke from those guidelines.
2: So uh, if we're talking about a piece of architecture... Um, it came uh, whoever made it they they were faced with severe restrictions on on the aesthetics on the building material, on the way each each room looked, et etc and so forth so, for example, when I talk about Soviet hospital or a Soviet kindergarten, you can almost assume that they all looked very much alike they would they would feel alike, they would have the same kind of color scheme. You know, schools, the way classes were organized, the way uh, your teacher addressed you, everything was just very structured. It was all the
1: same.
0: It goes without saying that this is a little bit more severe than at most companies, but you'd be forgiven if you're picturing your employer or a client right now. But all that stifling and restricting in the USSR actually came with a hidden benefit.
2: One interesting uh, area I like to think about is dance, because I'm a former dancer myself. So back in the Soviet Union, a lot of the choreographers were demanded to create dance which integrated some Soviet motifs, some Soviet themes. And that led to the creation of completely unique moves in some cases, uh, unique dance technique. Because for example, when they were asked to create a ballet about soldiers at war, the existing dance vocabulary may not have been enough to depict that, so what happened was, new moves were being born uh, to, to mimic these soldiers at war. So, for example, uh, if you watch some recordings of Soviet dance ensembles at the time, you'll see, for example, male dancers doing a move where they will squat on one leg, and they'll sort of grab around the other leg and pretend that their leg is a gun and they'll do this amazing trick where they jump and they kind of uh, leap around holding their leg as if it's a gun. And this trick, you know, up to this day when, when these shows are performed, The audience goes wild because it's a really difficult trick to do. Uh, And probably it would not have existed had uh, it not been for that one choreographer that was at some point in time demanded to stage a ballet about, you know, soldiers at war.
0: Varya's project, the Soviet Visual's Twitter handle, is breathtaking. One quick look at the feed reveals this beautiful array of colors and characters and music and architecture. I mean, it's
2: powerful, it's entertaining, it's funny, it's colorful, it's very diverse. So, uh, I I mean, one of my favorite examples is corn. So uh, in the 1960s, the leader of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, he had this utopian idea of planting corn across the Soviet Union because he thought that this corn was the answer to all of the agricultural problems of the time.
0: That's a constraint that artists there would now have to work within a specific part of the government's overall ideology. And that required the creation of propaganda by those artists.
2: And so without going into further detail of the corn program, <laughs> what is interesting is that this initiative was accompanied by the demand for uh, a giant collection of cultural assets about corn. And so when we have a group of you know, creative talent that is faced with a very specific problem of how might we create a full length animated film or a billboard poster, or, um, you know, a piece of furniture that integrates this idea of corn being uh, the best of the best things in life, the results are amazing. And, you know, we're not talking about any specific brand of corn. We're just talking about corn as a, as a concept, as a, as a vegetable. And, and so the result, we have these amazing animated films for children that are great and entertaining in their own right. And yet they also, you know, have a storyline that somehow manages to involve corn. Uh, We have artists who find parallels between corn and like other things that are shaped like corn, like a train, you know, in in some ways, even there was there was more freedom in the USSR, because while these artists had to had to be constrained by uh, the in the ideological sense, they were not constrained by any kind of commercial Idea. So they were not trying to make money with their work. There was no money. Everything was shared.
0: Varya first began to appreciate the uniqueness of Soviet-era artwork when she started traveling for a living. She began her career as a touring ballerina with a Russian dance company, hence her dance example from before. When we first spoke, she was living in Singapore, working for Twitter. And today, she's living in Dublin, working for Facebook.
2: So... I feel uh, even on a personal level, when this whole project was just beginning, I was trying to formulate to myself what type of content I would focus on. And I realized that I wanted it to be maybe a little bit about culture, about art, about interesting artifacts from Russia and the country surrounding it. But with this kind of unruly definition, I ended up hitting a creative block. Almost every time I sat down to to write a post or to to tweet something out, and for me, the way I managed to beat it was by creating a constraint for myself. So just by putting the word "Soviet" right there in the name of the project, I effectively limited myself to a very specific time period and a specific group of countries. And uh, within that frame, I was now able to go you know to go wild in terms of content and topics. And it just gave me so much more freedom and inspiration to dig deeper and to seek out truly quality content rather than just, you know, swimming around and uh, trying to continue without any such label. So in my case, having this label, funnily enough, uh, helped me a lot. It was a catalyst for for being more creative and creating better work.
0: Today, Varya consistently and constantly seeks out, or even invents, restrictions to improve her creativity on a given project. It's a positive lesson pulled out from a dark time in her home country's history.
2: Personally, maybe this is not the right thing to say, but it it makes me seek out more constraints. Because I see that uh, these people that were constrained to the extreme created such good work. That I almost find a correlation between having less freedom externally and having more freedom to create, if that makes any sense at all. I, I find that looking at the works that were created back then in a very structured environment, it, it almost makes me want to self-impose these constraints today to, to reach the best of my abilities. Yes, the, the place these restrictions came from was not a good place. Uh, it is probably not the best idea to have your life governed uh, so strictly by um, by a political entity. Yet, for the artists that worked within the system, I have no doubt that it, it opened up certain, uh, certain opportunities that they, they wouldn't have had otherwise. I feel that the world we live in today, we are so free that it is overwhelming. We're we are almost too free in, in the creative sense. We can create anything, anywhere, in any form or way, and I find that it just leads to a block. We We are overwhelmed.
0: The lack of creative freedom is, in a word, freeing. <music> when we install some constraints and actually embrace them, Suddenly, we can create some context in which we can really make stuff and invent and play. Now, we think we want creative freedom. I'll grant you that. I know you do. I do too. But But then studies, not to mention stories, all reveal that limitations actually yield more ideas and better ideas. They help us generate new concepts and implement them more successfully. Total creative freedom, I now think, is a myth. Because when we're faced with a wide open field, we instinctively start to build a box. We start pulling from stuff that we like. Boom, there's one wall of the box right there. Or we look for inspiration from others. Boom, there's another wall. We open our favorite tools. We go to our favorite coffee shop. We put on our favorite playlist. Think about our goals. Over and over again, we look at and, and consider and build constraints around us until we're in a box. So when we crave creative freedom... I think we're actually saying, I don't like the box I'm in now. But the solution isn't total absence of a box. It's a better one. One that we've built maybe in harmony and upon agreeing with our boss, our client, or our peers. And the friction we feel is when we don't agree on the same box. But if we get unhappy and start yearning for total creative freedom, we're yearning for something that does not exist. And it would be a bad option to find that field if it did. Because creative freedom isn't a lack of limitations, it's installing the right ones. It's not some mythical ideal that we can hold up on a pedestal and go find somewhere. It's a process, it's a work ethic. Trusting your intuition to do more exceptional work doesn't require that you remove constraints. It requires that you define, seek out, and embrace them. When it came time to build the Harvard Business Review for Startups, Camille at First Round embraced her constraints. What does the First Round Review do? Not necessarily better, but differently than all the seemingly endless amounts of VC blogging out there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think a lot of it came out of us really thinking carefully around what was going to be differentiating because even three or four years ago now, I guess, that we launched, there was already a large amount of content in the VC space. So a few things. Um, I would say that taking a more long form approach to this content was deeply different than anything else that was going on at the time. Uh, A lot of the content produced in tech overall is very short, very snackable, uh, doesn't go into too much detail. And it was a risk that we took saying like, hey, maybe there's appetite for something more than this, for extremely detailed analysis of how to do things. So that was one thing that we uh, definitely did very intentionally. The other was going after very specific tactics uh, so one of the earliest breakout hit pieces that we had was an interview with one of the founders of Airbnb, Joe Gebbia, and he was talking about how early on they didn't see a lot of traction. It was because the photos were no good on the Airbnb site. So they actually sent professional photographers out uh, in order to elevate the level um, of art on the site. And that actually ended up helping the company a lot.
0: See, I I, I remember that piece like I. I've cited that as an example. There's always those phrases like in startup world, you know, do things that don't scale is one of those phrases. Like that's an example of something that doesn't quote scale that actually fundamentally changed a business. And you can hold up that example, but it wasn't like unlocked for the world to access until you guys did that.
1: Totally. So I think that there's all of this wisdom and experience that just gets trapped in people like Joe's head that never gets expressed. And then you see a bunch of articles across the board being like, do things that don't scale but then they don't really dig into what that looks like on the ground or in practice, and certainly not how it looked for a company that obviously succeeded using the tactic. So that's sort of what we aim to do, is to mine examples and history of what actually happened and what has proven to be successful in the past, and then derive lessons that can be replicable for others.
0: I love that, and it's so concrete. It's, you know, we're gonna do longer form content as delivered by or through the lens of practitioners, not like, you know, Harvard Business Review doesn't have a big staff of writers. They have mostly practitioners writing, and it is a little bit more in-depth than your average, you know, quote, snackable, whatever, entrepreneur or Inc. Magazine stuff. How do you kind of realize that you've reached that aspiration when you do?
1: Yeah, especially in the long-form content, we started hearing things from people like, this is the one and only article that you need in order to build a sales pipeline that makes sense for this type of B2B company. Like people were using our articles as manuals or like value payloads that they were sending out to their team or to their bosses saying like, hey, this is a comprehensive source of advice on this thing that we're trying to do. So we understood immediately that the long form was actually working in a way that maybe we hadn't even predicted, but was really promising and robust. And the other thing that I think we saw was people sharing with their their entire team. So if they read an article that was about engineering in some respect, like finding out that it had been sent out to the entire team at companies like Dropbox or Airbnb because they deemed it that valuable, they wanted everybody to sort of have those thoughts top of mind. That's when we really thought that we had something uh, that we wanted to double down and really run with.
0: Camille wasn't looking for total and final success, at least not at first. Remember, she had a bunch of limitations, very little budget, no full-time bloggers, and a very aggressive timeline to launch that first round review blog. So when she started transcribing offline speeches into online blog posts, it would make no sense to judge those based on absolute reach or huge success.
1: Whenever you start a content strategy, you're not going to see immediate up into the right traction. It's going to be a little bit rocky. There are some pieces that are going to get zero response. There are some pieces that will then be posted on Hacker News or make it to tech meme or get sent around to the right people that suddenly have a huge growth spurt. Um, So those are the things to pay attention to to make sure that you are getting a number of those moments rather than every article sort of hitting or seeing sort of like rational, general compounding growth.
0: So instead, Camille wanted Signal of success. She wanted a small number of people, passionate fans, reacting in a big way. Again, not as the final destination, but as a sign they were on the right road.
1: So what we thought was really promising before launch was that we would see, you know, a piece here and there, maybe every three or four pieces would get hundreds or even over a thousand shares. And that's that's sort of how we determined the direction that we wanted to go in was what did those pieces have in common? And then how can we make those fundamental to everything that we were writing going forward?
0: And yeah, when you use your constraints to define a test, it can sound really smart in theory. So let's get a dose of reality.
1: I work on stories all of the time where the the person who is being featured all of a sudden says, I don't feel comfortable with this. Uh, I don't think that we should do it. And at that point, maybe you're like 10 hours in on a story where you've done the interview, you've already written it. I think a lot of writers can relate to this probably in some way or another where we really are trying to get to the ugly truth of how these people have built things and how they've had really hard human moments. And sometimes people just don't want that out there.
0: You guys have an incredible brand and an amazing publication. I wouldn't even say blog because it, it seems so, so much more elevated than that with the first round review. Uh obviously it's not an overnight success. So as a writer, speaking to other writers, creators, podcasters, et cetera, content marketers, give me like the biggest existential crisis, emotional moment you ever experienced building first round review.
1: Oh, wow. Jay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gosh, there's so many to choose from. (laughs) What am I going to say? A couple things. One of the big questions we asked is Should we do more content given that we've seen success with what we've already been doing? Right now, we're sort of regularly publishing twice a week. Should we be doing three, four? Should we turn this into like its own standalone media company? Um, But then having more of a restrained and thoughtful perspective on what is the appetite of this audience? Are there other ways that we could be helpful? Um, How could the review be leveraged in different ways if we were able to sort of dedicate more thought to each one of those publishing dates? Um, So that's been sort of a back and forth, you know, having to be really frank and I guess not, not overly extend our current capabilities and really right. think about what's useful to people.
0: Even as they've grown and found success, the goal is still to define those limitations. Don't overly extend. Build the box. Make it work and then push out the walls. A little bit here, a little bit there. Because in the end, that is creative freedom. First Round has invested in companies like Uber, Square, Warby Parker, and more. And as a venture capital firm with ample resources and no convert them now mentality, they seem to have total freedom. Varya Batsova's favorite artists lived in the USSR. As Soviet Russians with few resources and an oppressive obey us now government, they seem totally restricted. So, what freedoms and constraints do you need based on these stories? I have no idea. What amount of each do you need? Also. No idea. But the next time you sit around longing for that total creative freedom, that wide open field, remember the box. Remember Camille and Varya. Remember the first round review and a tiny Russian ballerina holding up her leg like a gun.